inconceivable. You give you send a horse. I do not think it means what you think it means. All right. Uh, we are live on our second live stream. Uh, this time we are actually streaming to uh, Facebook, YouTube, and Periscope. This is um, the uh, Fairness Freedom Friends Foundation. Um, we're going to talk today about citizenship. And um, we had an article that we came across that uh, we thought kind of posted kind of an interesting um way of thinking about it. And so we're going to start there as a jumping off point and carry on the conversation, uh, carry on the conversation from there. But before I ask uh, Matthew to kind of give a brief synopsis of the article on kind of what he thought about it, uh, I'm going to do a shameless plug by our book. I do not think that word means what you think it means. It is a wonderful gift for people that you disagree with on the internet. It's good for a laugh. It's good for the coffee table. And hopefully um, can provide for some thought-provoking and civil conversations around sensitive topics. So without further ado, Matthew, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about the article and what you thought of it. I was impressed with this article just for asking a good question, which was like, how, to actually, how do Americans think about what it means to be a citizen? Um, and I felt like the, the person who asked the question was almost disappointed in the answer because I think they were hoping that there would be some sort of bigger idealism embedded in the way people thought about citizenship. And what it turned out was that a lot of people thought about citizenship very similar to the way they think about being a, a consumer um, in relationship to a big company. They're like, well, I pay for stuff and I get stuff. And, and it, it, it's sort of transactional and that then the article sort of went down the, the, the hole of saying like, well, um, how are you likely to vote if you think of it that way? Are you more likely to vote to get more benefits for your money or even less maybe? And it, it seemed like the more people thought about being a citizen as being like a consumer, the more likely they were to actually vote for a, 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 a party that would offer them less um for their taxes. I think with the implication that the less government is also going to lead to less taxes. And they, they didn't fully explore that, but it, but it, it was interesting because I've always thought of citizenship as being more of a, uh, you know, a duty and an honor and a, a shared responsibility. And I guess it makes sense without enough of that being articulated that people think of it as pretty transactional. I pay taxes and therefore I get, roads or I get benefits or I get, um, you know, social security or whatever it is. So, it, you know, it wasn't that in-depth of an article, but I think there is a lot of um, scholarship that's that's starting to look down, look down the rabbit hole of this and figure out what people actually mean by it. And uh, it's obviously a moving target. I mean, I, I don't know that there actually is an objective thing what citizenship is. For most people, it probably doesn't, isn't anything at all. So, um, it opened up a good uh, good direction of discussion, I think. So that's where yeah. I am on it. Um, I mean, I think it's an interesting concept. Uh, I mean, at first kind of first blush, I'm I'm not 100 sure. I I kind of you know I haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about it, but you know. So let's let, actually before I go too far into that, like I'm not sure I have a problem with the notion of 
thinking about citizenship as a, as a consumer. Um, I mean, we are consumers and I think at the base kind of the base point of consumerism and of kind of capitalism and capital markets, et cetera, is that, you know, people compete for goods and services. The problem is that I guess a government isn't going to compete for goods and services, but maybe political parties do. So there's, I guess there's a lot there. Maybe we should start by citizenship. You said you always thought about citizenship as a duty and an honor uh, and a responsibility. I might've missed one of the words that you used there. And I, I don't disagree. I think that, but, but, but what is citizenship? And in preparing for this podcast, I actually, um, I went to the internets and asked the internets, what, what, what does citizenship mean? And what was interesting to me actually was that all the definitions revolved around a government um, or the primary definitions revolve around some form of government. So, I mean, so what is citizenship? What does it mean? What does it mean to you? That is a great question. I mean, I've seen it mean different things in America and in Israel. It has some overlap because both countries take a huge amount of pride in having uh, some of the world's best armed forces. And, um, you know, for, for Israelis, for a lot of Israeli citizenship is very wrapped up in doing the army and having done the army. And um, I think one of the strengths of the country is that outside of any sort of interaction with the government around taxes or benefits around which there's a huge amount of argument and disgust and just frustration, there's a huge amount of readiness to take responsibility. Um, so there's, there's a lot of people who even when they're not, quote, on duty as a soldier or anything, God forbid anything happens, people take it upon themselves to be a part of the, um, you know, the, set, the chain of responsibility in the instant of an incident. So there's been like completely uh, ordinary citizens who've helped stop terror attacks. There's a huge thing where there's this volunteer uh, EMT kind of service that's now distributed so much that, that you can have, if you call 911, somebody will be at your house in most even small towns and far out neighborhoods in Israel, somebody will be at your house, a first responder within like three minutes or something crazy like that. So there's a couple of ways that people sort of take responsibility for their fellow citizens here. That's really cool. Um, I think that happens in America, but it takes a crisis like 9-11 to bring it out. Um, and then there's the other side of it, which is like, oh, well, because I'm legally a citizen, I get to travel with my passport. I have to pay my taxes. I have to put these things in. And then these are the things I get for that. I have the right to, like in Israel, you have the right to healthcare. In America, you have the right to, uh, well, I'm not sure, but many things. Um, so that, that's sort of broad, but it's kind of not really interesting. <laughs> uh, so actually, so I I'm going to lead back kind of towards the notion of consumer citizenship. And I, I'm, I'm going to think, I'm going to say that I think that the, the, the article kind of, there's two things I think we should distinguish. And one is the concept of citizenship, which I think even in America, the concept of citizenship is somewhat similar to kind of how you described it, maybe um, not as in depth, but, and then there's, then there's political choice. And I think what the author might've been better suited to say is that Americans make political choices based on more like shoppers. And I think that that's, I mean, that's probably 
a good thing. I mean, we live in a world where, I mean, it's good and bad, but, um, you know, we, we have to make political choices. We just had an election. Um, and, and, and those elections end up kind of having an impact on the direction of the company country. Wow. Freudian slip. Um, um, and those decisions have an impact on the direction that the country goes. And, you know, you got to weigh up the options, uh, between kind of what each kind of person who's running for whatever office you're voting for, um, stands for and is going to do. And, uh, yes, there is definitely a lens of give and take on a personal scale, but I, I think that most people actually don't um, don't take their vote on a you know the most self interested transactional basis. I mean, um, look, a lot of super wealthy people voted for Joe Biden, who actively told them, "I am going to tax you more." So. I mean, I think it kind of blows up that kind of like the very base level of people only just vote their, you know, vote just 100% self-interest. Like if people voted just 100% self-interest, every wealthy person in the United States would have voted for Donald Trump because he already lowered taxes and pledged to lower taxes further. Like if that was the only lens through which people voted, uh, um, I, I think that you would have seen different, uh, different vote trends. I think actually income was positively correlated with the Democrat party. Like the more you made, the more likely you were to vote for Democrats. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it had some, some devil in the details with that. Certain kinds of rich people were more likely to vote for Trump. Um, certain kinds, certain industries were much more likely to vote for Biden. I think tech and, and finance, but like small business owners were more likely to vote for Trump, but I'm not sure that self-interest so that was one of the things the article did sort of scrape the surface of is self-interest isn't just who's going to lower my taxes. Um, you, you know, I see a lot of memes that say, you know, being taxed, pe you know, rich people uh, are afraid of being taxed. And well, the meme would say something like that's the least violent verb that people are talking about doing to the rich. Like if they're not taxed enough and then like there was an image of a guillotine, you know? Um, so I, I think it can be in uh, rich people's interest to be taxed more and make sure that the, the uh, other half or the other 99% are, so to speak, have enough standard of living or bread and circuses or however you want to frame it so that they don't have the level of anger that leads them to uh, get their pitchforks and seize the uh, the wealth or the banks or the Bastille or whatever, whatever winds up happening if, if too many people feel like the social contract or the inequality has gotten too out of control. So it could, and that's a long way of saying it could still be in your self-interest to vote for higher taxes. I mean, I think the bigger thing is if you're shopping and you only have two options. I mean, I saw the election. One of the other memes I saw was like, it's the choice. It's like you get on an airplane and they're like, here's your two options for the meal. You can have a shit sandwich or a baguette full of broken glass. Which do you want? Yeah, um, that's definitely there's definitely a lot. 
that you just said there that was kind of interesting and, and worthy of discussing. Um, I definitely agree with you on the shit sandwich analogy. Um, um, and I think actually in a lot of ways, uh, what the appeal of Donald Trump to so many people, um, what was that he tried to present a different option. Um, and he tried to shake things up a little bit. Uh, we can discuss whether that was good or bad or whether he did any of that or not. But, um, I think that's what a big part of his appeal to a lot of people was that kind of this willingness to shake it up and, and try to offer a third option. Now, according to many, that might have been a diarrhea burrito, but um, it was, or, it was at least, it was at least well, well, I'm saying, like, if you think to just kind of carry your analogy, right? So we've had the Democrat and Republican Party um, for so long um, in our system and, and then the founding fathers um, or some of them, um, and I, I always going to mess this up a little bit, but one of their great fears was the emergence of a two-party system or the emergence of parties in general, which ultimately inevitably lead to a two-party system. And when you have a two-party system, what you have is a lack of diversity of options. Um, so yes, you have to choose uh, kind of which one you kind of more closely align with, and that allows them to form their positions in such a way that... Um, and that allows them to form their position in such a way that they don't ever really have to have real conversations about real issues. Yeah. I mean, there was a point where the two parties, well, there's been several points like in the thirties, I think at one point the Democrats had over 80% of Congress, but there was this tremendous factionalism within the Republican Party and within the Democratic Party that allowed for you to have a lot of opinions, a lot of issues, a lot of uh, choices, even within those two parties, with the different candidates who ran uh, for primaries, with the different ways. Actually, that comes back to the idea of citizenship is that I, I think a giant problem in the West is that most people have dropped the ball of what citizenship used to mean, which was engagement, which was like really being involved in local politics, in unions, in chambers of commerce, in um, protests, in, you know, going to the state house and being present for a vote that was important to them, um, calling their you know, representative or senator or governor, uh, you know, call the office a hundred times, write op-eds in the local paper. There used to be local papers. Um, I feel like most people have just devolved down to where their only engagement with citizenship is a vote. And maybe a small donation to one of your two parties, but not even necessarily to an agenda within the two parties. I, I like the fact that Trump sort of hijacked one of the parties into a totally different set of possibilities. And I think Bernie tried to do that to the Democratic Party. So, it, you know, both of them were sort of saying the choices that this party is giving you are not not enough and not transparent enough. And there's this insider bullshit going on and needs to be broken, needs to make people feel like they have some active citizenship again. So I hope it starts to happen. I don't know if Trump's thing really wound up being that, but it, at least open up the possibility that someone could break the system from the outside. Um, yeah, 
sorry, I lost. I had a thought that was kind of going all the way back, kind of back on the, more on the consumer side. It's kind of interesting, um, and I'm going to go back to another thing you said about kind of consumerism and maximizing one's self-interest, and in a world which was somebody could vote for higher taxes, and and still, and that would be in their own personal best interest. And I think that's an interesting take because um, when you and I have discussed in the past, kind of corporate and you know the the, the purpose of a corporation is to maximize shareholder value, and, and the argument there is always is always oh it's all just profit, 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 dollars and cents. But the answer is no, and you're starting to see this in corporations also, where where sometimes in the what's in your best interest in the long run is not necessarily what's in your best interest in the short run, and it, and it exists across. So I thought that was an interesting parallel. Yeah, and that made me think there was another little piece in the article, which, and I've noticed this in a lot of these sort of analyzing articles about voter preference, and this was trying to give the consumerism as the model for the consumer preference, but it's like they're trying to explain how people could, quote, vote against their interest. And what I hear very often when I hear sort of allegedly smart people opining about this, writing op-eds and articles about it, is they can't understand how anyone in their right mind would vote for Trump and therefore against their own self-interest, I think, or vote for a Republican, which is somehow must be against their self-interest if they have less money or are poor or whatever. And there's something very patronizing and condescending about that. Um, I mean, I personally have never voted Republican in my life, but I'm insulted by the way a lot of Democratic politicians or, you know, Democratic leaning pundits will talk about how how could people vote against their self-interest by voting for a Republican, by voting for Trump, by voting for someone who's going to give them less benefits, by voting for someone who's going to give tax breaks to the rich. So actually, I... I so there's a huge amount of hubris in that um, because I think that everybody at the end of the day does, like you said, certainly consider to some extent their self-interest when making a vote. And maybe what's happening is those people just don't understand the calculus that goes into people's own kind of personal self-interest. I mean, I, I personally, I mean, I voted for Democrats and Republicans. Um, I've, I've often told people kind of my, my general political leanings is I'm a I'm a Republican voting libertarian with anarchist tendencies. So I'll vote. I think government is broken um, and they, they haven't really done very much right over the years. And so therefore I'm going to vote for the people and party that's going to tax me less because I think they're just going to mismanage and misuse the money. And I think that <clears throat> a lot of people feel that way. Uh, and so therefore when you're voting for lower taxes, it's not that you're saying, Hey, I don't want, um, I don't want money to be used uh, collectively for the for the good of society, and I don't want to pay my quote fair share. and And I'm going to ask you to define that in a minute. Um, but that you know, what are you going to do with that money, and why are you in a better position to do to do good with that money than I am? That's a great question. I mean, I think it's almost by definition subjective. And there is a, like, what's fair in a, a society where the shape of the economy has changed a lot, right? 
Um, and also there's a sense of fairness in terms of like a hard days, you know, if you work hard five days a week, there's a, there's a perception that you should be able to make ends meet, um, you know, with, with some sort of reasonable, not the fanciest housing around, not the fanciest car, um, you know, not the fanciest food, not eat out all the time, but there's a sense that if you work hard, you should be able to make ends meet. And then when they see other people making billions of dollars, America has a bit of a split personality about it. I think we respect, I saw a great thing saying one of the reasons Trump is respected is precisely because he's failed several times is that he's taken risks. And I think Americans more than almost any other society, except for maybe Israel, respects risk-taking and entrepreneurship, like recognizes there's a value to that. So I think that the anger at rich people is when there's a perception that someone didn't take a risk to make their billions. Hmm. So like people who work at banks are more resented than like Silicon Valley entrepreneurs or um, inventors like, you know, Elon Musk. And, yeah, I, I don't and, think you know, there are very many billionaires that didn't take a lot of risk. Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to talk right past that for a second. I'm going to point out that. You said that there's this perception in America that if you work hard, you should be able to make ends meet. And I think that that has devolved in certain areas. But I think that those areas actually are run by Democrats, largely. Um, they're the big, progressive urban cities where the government has decided that we know what's best for people. We are going to control them. And I think that with the pandemic, and we're going to make it work. And it, you, those are the cities with the most poverty, the cities with the most crime. The cities have the most problems, and they keep pouring more and more and more money into those problems and keep failing, which is what is waking people up to saying, hey, this isn't working, right? And so what's happening? The pandemic, I think, as bad as it is on many, many fronts, is waking this up. People are starting to vote with their feet, right? Because there are plenty of places in America where if you work hard, you can earn a decent living. You can own a home, right? If you, you find can, a job. If you're allowed to work at that job, if you're allowed to leave your house to work at that if job. If you go to Texas today, right, and I have numerous friends that are currently moving to Texas in the process. From California. From California. If you go from California to Texas today, you have the right to get a job. You can go out wherever you want, right, and do whatever you want pretty much. And, um, and you can earn a living. You can buy a house. You can you can afford to buy a house. And I mean, I, the couple that's leaving, they both have kind of, they're not super wealthy. They're not high income earners. Neither one of them is like a, a professional in a major field. Right. And they live in long beach, California, and they not able to ever think about buying a home where the cheapest home I think in this city is scratching a million dollars. Uh, and they're moving to Texas. They're going to be able to buy a house for like 300,000 bucks with land. Yeah. Or like, they America altogether, and they become expats in Colombia. I met people like that. Or oh, and, and, and yeah, and, and there was a very interesting article in the in 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 the paper the other day about uh, I think some companies. It was talking about how some companies are starting to rethink geographic based geography based pay. So when when Google and Facebook and all those companies kind of shut down their offices in the pandemic. And told people, oh, you, we're not going to call you back to the office, so you feel free to leave. Anybody who did leave faced a pay cut. And, and before, even before the pandemic, they were paying kind of one-time 
relocation fees to employees who wanted to move to cheaper states, which came with a 10% pay cut, but um, but you got a one-time bump to kind of cover your moving expenses with the notion being that cost of living was cheaper in those other markets. Um, so yeah, you're right. We're getting to a point where people, I mean, I, I talked to somebody the other day who's a, uh, who works for a tech company, uh, was living in the Bay Area, just moved to Hawaii. Right? Expensive. I mean, awesome. Yeah. But, but I mean, I, I'm not, I don't know how much more expensive Hawaii is than the Bay Area, especially when you take into account things like rent. For sure. For sure. I, I, Hawaii has its own problems, but it is a paradise. Um, no, but the idea you're, you're sort of opening up the idea that, that moving, choosing to be a citizen of Texas instead of California or whatever is actually kind of almost like a consumer way to be a citizen. You're choosing to, uh, uh, so to speak, buy the services of a state, the land or the utilities or the local taxes, local property taxes, local non-property taxes, the local non-income taxes, whatever it is. And then you get the benefits of living in that state, um, you know, whatever they are, better or worse, which in this case, in certain ways, Texas is better. You could argue it's worse in terms of Corona safety, if you believe that. Um, no, we're not having that argument right now. But um, there, there's something, there's something tugging at me that I can't quite put into words about the, um, huh? Like, if you, well, okay, I'll leave it there. Where, I think that you're you're correct. That is a look when when you you are one when you consumerism has to do with kind of that's this notion of thinking of citizenship as a consumer type good has to do with uh with with exercising your power as a consumer i have my power my power is my wallet right and i get to choose where and how i spend my dollars and who i buy from and i get to make my own calculus as to how i do that right Mm -hmm. and so the article looked at it from the perspective of oh I think about my my dollar as my boat, right? Yes, and and that's one kind of aspect, and it, I think that that is kind of correct. But I think um, if you look at your dollar as all of your dollars, which look, you know, you pay taxes, right? And so if you choose to move to a place that will tax you less, um, that is you acting as a consumer in the citizenship context. And you then took it one step further by talking about just going expat and going to another country. Um, and so, I mean, that's all that's, I mean, I, I think that that's kind of a, an interesting, an interesting way to think about things. And I'm not sure if it's good or bad. Um, but I would all say is the other side of where I'm saying is that I personally think that um the other side of it is to is to yes be more actively engaged and being be a more uh, involved citizen, which is very time consuming and expensive. But my, you know, when people complain to me about what's going on in California, I have a very simple solution, and I just tell them stop voting for Democrats. I mean, that's <laughs> the, the, the specific actions of the Democrats in California. Yeah, which in might California, not be no, no, I, I, you can make whatever choice you want. And I have voted for Democrats often in California. 
what California did a long time ago, not that long ago, uh, I think 2016 or 20, 2016 or 2014. Right, there's like thresholds. So the only people running in the final election is like two Democrats, right? Yeah, they changed the primary system to the top two vote getters uh, in the primary, go to the general. So there are frequently cases where there are only Democrats running. Um, and, and I think that, I think that they're, like I said, I'm not, I'm not actually a partisan, although I, I tend to associate more with the Republican party. Um, I think that, that there is huge opportunity here because I think that people in California are largely disgruntled, uh, based on the, the handling of the current crisis and, um, but the level of control is asserted. There's a huge recall effort going on against the governor. Mm. Um, right now in California, I think they're they're on the verge of getting enough signatures to force force a recall election. Uh, I personally didn't sign it. I'm 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 anti recall. That's just just kind of kind of my perspective. I think that um, the governor is every inch the man that he was elected in 2018. Uh, I didn't vote for him in 2018 because I knew that he was potentially like this. So in 2018, I didn't know there was going to be a pandemic in 2020. Uh, but I think that elections have consequences. So the people of the state voted for that guy uh, to keep the for a term. Yeah, for four years, and he should get his four years. And on some level, that that kind of living with that choice is sometimes important. Like I have children; sometimes they make mistakes, and sometimes as a parent, we need to allow our children to live with the consequences of their actions, <laughs> um, so that they learn not to do stupid things in the future. Right. Right. I, I'm afraid because of the two-party duopoly, it, it, it almost makes it makes it very difficult for people to learn those lessons or to have it even be clear that the consequence of the vote is the, the outcome that you are seeing now. Because um, both parties have, I, I mean, looking at it, looking at America as a whole, I, I would say I'm not going out on a limb if I say that both parties share in the blame for the level of incompetence at dealing with the, with the pandemic, um, a lot of finger pointing, but to, to, I, I've been enraged at people who, especially like fancy sounding experts who act like, well, there's nothing better we could have done. And I'm like, there are other countries that have done much better. And they're not actually the Western European countries for once. It's actually more like, you know, Japan, South Korea, Vietnam, China, rich countries, poor countries, sub-Saharan Africa has done better than America. Like that should embarrass people of both parties, <laughs> but somehow there's no learning going on. I don't see any learning going on and I see very little, and maybe this is the consumer mentality. I see very little citizen willingness to take responsibility for like the direction of the country like okay you're not in government but what can you do as a citizen to improve the the situation i mean it's 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 a little cartoonish but i'm i'm uh i bought a uh ultraviolet light because it I have read and I saw in China they were using it to disinfect from Corona and I, I'm wandering the land with my lightsaber to, to, to kill Corona because I don't see anyone else doing it. That's my version of citizenship this month, you know? Yeah. Um, that's kind of, I mean, I, I, I don't know if we want to go down the rabbit hole of discussing Corona and how to 
how it did to deal with it and the pros and cons of what to deal with it. But I do like your uh, personal citizenship initiative uh, of a Corona lightsaber. I, <laughs> I mean, I, maybe I should look got, into one for myself. Someone's got to do it. I, I mean, and it's also that I'm a historian and I saw how, you know, I, I've read stories about how people in different countries dealt with like World War II you know, there was like people like, uh, what's her name? Hedy Lamar, who was like a Hollywood star. But mm -hmm. when World War II started, she started like inventing all sorts of awesome stuff, like for that became a lot of wireless technology. And she just kind of, I don't know, donated it to the government, basically. She was like, hey, here's all these awesome inventions. Maybe you can use them for wireless I mean, transmission. I think that we have seen some of that. Um in, we, in we have, pandemic. Yeah. I mean, and I think well, let's like the Western European countries and Western countries in general, including the United States, probably at the forefront of the development of vaccine in a very very short period of time um, was kind of crazy. And I, 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 one of the things that I have a tremendous amount of respect for the president uh, on is that is, is Operation Warp Speed. A lot of people kind of I think. Maybe it, maybe it was poorly named, and that gave the uh, media and the other side plenty of ammunition to kind of jump at them. But they would have done it anyway. But I mean, what the what what the what what the Trump administration effectively did with Operation Warp Speed is they said, you know what, we don't know what vaccine is going to work, and we don't know what what it is. But the way that things usually work is companies have to go ahead and and try make do trials and pass through trials and that's a very expensive process and very time consuming and only then can they start production so one of the main things that operation warp speed did was it gave it gave these companies risk free production so the reason why Pfizer and Moderna are today distributing millions of doses of vaccine around the world not just in the United States right is because the Trump administration handed them billions of dollars to basically say, look, you think your vaccine's going to work? It looks like it's going to work. The science looks like it's going to work. So here's a couple billion dollars. Start producing it. And what would if it would have failed in clinical trials, guess what? It, that would have been billions of dollars down the drain, right? Uh, but what they did was they made enough bets uh, on that around, around different companies that a couple of them uh, paid off very quickly. And there are more down the pipeline too. And so the world is going to be awash in vaccines in very, very short order. And even traditional vaccines, by the way, because AstraZeneca uh, just got uh, emergency use approval, I think yesterday or the day before in, in England. And I'm not suggesting that they, I don't, I actually don't know if they benefited from, from the Operation Warp Speed notion. But one element of it was that, was that pre-production, which I thought was quite frankly, a stroke of genius. I mean, that's using the power of the government purse to incentivize um, to incentivize uh, market forces, uh, and right, right. I, I noticed actually that Chinese government was also excellent in in many different fields, much quicker than America. Like this thing that you're talking about, America incentivizing a behavior that it wanted, and many different producers to try to produce a given outcome. Um, I think China does that almost like sequentially they just look industry by industry and they say what should be happening here how can we uh reduce the liability and increase the incentive for companies to jump in and um create this create that lower the costs of this 
um, what's in the way of this industry growing and uh, developing quickly. Um, it, it opens up a little bit of a, so the concept of corporate citizenship, leaving aside corporate personhood, which is its own giant mess, but the idea that a corporation's a person is kind of weird. But I think up until the 50s or 60s, it was pretty commonly understood that corporations strove to be good citizens and that they had a responsibility to the towns where they had their factories and to the people who had worked for them for uh, years or decades um, to support the community. There's some famous story of some guy who owned a huge factory in, in the Boston area who had like 500 employees and something happened. He had to shut down the factory for three or four months and he kept all the employees on full-time salaries for the three months or four months out of his own pocket um, until he could get it back online again. Um, that idea of kind of a good corporate citizen, I think, Corporations are a lot more likely to um, not feel like they have responsibilities to a local, um, you know, to the place or to the people who help build them, but they're a lot more likely to move production away, outsource. They'll spend money on a PR campaign claiming they're such good citizens. But I think a, a lot of people would agree that corporations are not as good citizens as they used to be. So I'm curious to see whether this vaccine thing sort of maybe helps reverse that a little bit, that whether Pfizer and Moderna and whatever actually are being good citizens or they're just trying to profit from this, um, you know, remains to be seen. But I hope that it's erring in the direction of really being good citizens, good corporate citizens. Well, if, if I just kind of, that's kind of a throwaway. If, if we define citizenship as being good consumers or, or shoppers, then maybe the seeking of profit is the right way to be a good citizen. Um, but, and anecdotally, um, that, that to that factory in the Boston area, uh, that's what all the casinos in Las Vegas did. Um, they had to shut down for several months and they kept everybody on payroll. And that's that, by the way, that's a smart corporate decision in certain circumstances. And it's going to, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of math that goes into making that decision, you know, whether or not you actually have the resources available to do that and whether that's something that you're able to do. Um, but in, if you are work for Las Vegas Sands, which was the first one to come out and say, hey, we're going to keep paying all our people, you know, in, in, tight, in tight economies like we had immediately preceding the pandemic, um, the loyalty from employee to employer was very low. And employers were working on uh, ways of boosting that that level of connection between themselves and their employees. And when in the downturn, when you when you do something like that, you um, you you cement a lot of that loyalty, and you also give yourself the ability to staff up very quickly. So staffing. I mean, I don't know how many people LDS Las Vegas Sands uh, employs in Las Vegas, but it's, I think it's tens of thousands. And so when you think about having to make 10,000. Some, some of the tenants that you, I would guess some of the tenants that you, uh, you your company. Oh, helped to? Yeah. To. Yeah, I probably, uh, although I don't, I couldn't tell you off top, offhand, but um, yeah. So, I mean, they employ tens of thousands of people. And so just, the logistics of firing and then 
all these people are laying them off uh, and then going about kind of calling them all back to work when you're ready to reopen is a huge like logistical nightmare has a ton of costs. So there is a lot of kind of value and profit. I know that in some circles, profit is a dirty word, uh, but, um, but there's a lot of potential for profit uh, or at least mitigation of downside risk or kind of the least bad option and continue to pay people even if they can't work. Um, it's just a thought. Uh, and I think the notion of. You, you're right. There's, so there's something kind of uh, that precedes that. Like the licenses were given for gambling to be legal uh, with a certain set of understanding that this would put a lot of money in state coffers, meaning benefit the citizens of Nevada, benefit the citizens of Las Vegas. Um, you, you know, gambling is, uh, let's let's say, at the even under the best of circumstances, is kind of a problematic industry um, that, you know, on the best day has at least some people who are gambling addicts losing their losing money they shouldn't be losing. You could argue the stock market's the same way, but, um, but, but you're, you're, you're encouraging a certain kind of behavior that we all sort of agree as at least something of a vice in exchange for that benefiting the community. So of all the citizens, like, of, I mean, I should say of all the corporations, casinos and like cigarette companies, we, we sort of, and alcohol companies, we allow them to exist and to profit and they have huge profit margins in exchange for an understanding they're going to pay sin taxes or a higher level of taxes and sort of go the extra mile in terms of being better corporate citizens in a way that another industry, we might not have that expectation. You know what I mean? There's there's a sense of fairness there that I I think needs to be pulled out a little bit. I, well, I think I just I I don't know that I directly disagree with any of the specifics that you cited as far as kind of the existence of taxes. No, just the notion that okay, there is no the, the, when they when the when the Nevada Gaming Board handed out licenses to Las Vegas Sands to operate. I don't know how many casinos they operate on the, on the strip in Las Vegas or, you know, they didn't say, Oh, if there's a pandemic, you have to, you know, retain your employees for, for X number of months. Yes. They did say you're going to have to pay a lot of extra taxes. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that being actively involved and engaged as a company and a corporation in your, in your surroundings is profitable at the end of the day. Right. And, and, and I think that being profitable, it just means that you're maximizing the values of all kinds of different things. And it's not just dollars and cents. It's not just down to the pennies. And the people that understand that, I think, uh, are the ones that ultimately win. And I mean, I've seen a lot of hate thrown at Jeff Bezos recently uh, because he's too rich. But I mean, there's a man who built a company that is 100% focused around around um, making the customer happy and giving the customer what they want and actively wanting to hear when customers have have negative uh, negative uh, interactions with his company. The point where I, I read an article recently that I shared with you, how he still maintains his, his, his personal email address is public. Like anybody can email Jeff Bezos. Now, I can't guarantee he's going to read every single one of them, right? But 
he still monitors. He, he he apparently according to the article, he personally monitors that email account, which is which is uh, which is I think pretty interesting. And I mean, Amazon is a hugely profitable company. Why? Because he just he set out and saying, "Hey, I want to make my customers happy." And at the end of the day, I, I, and this kind of gets into kind of shareholder versus stakeholder capitalism. But at the end of the day, I think what is good for what is good for your stakeholders is ultimately good for your shareholders. And that's what Las Vegas Sands did when they kept their employees on for several months without actually even being able to operate as a business. Now they can they could afford well, to do that and not all companies can afford to do that. And that has to do with how much of your how much of your how much of your balance sheet is liquid. How much cash can you put your hands on in a given day? to pay people when you don't have the income coming in? And what are your real profit margins? I think that most people don't really understand kind of what are the profit margins of companies, corporations. I mean, I don't know what actually Las Vegas Sands net profit margin is, but I do, I haven't looked at it in a while, but like Walmart, which for a long time was one of the most quote profitable companies on the planet. What do you think their profit margin would be? Their net profit margin. Margin's small, right. Yeah. Bottom line of like every dollar that, that every dollar that gets spent at Walmart, at least over a couple of years ago, I haven't looked at it in a couple of years, like something like two cents is retained at the end of the day as profit for shareholders. Yeah. Whether 98 cents pays suppliers, it pays employees, it pays for the goods that, that you're selling, it pays for all kinds of other stuff in between, it pays for taxes. At the end of the day, what's left of that dollar that was spent at Walmart, two cents is what's left for shareholders. Now, yeah. You may say that's too much. I don't know. But well, at the same well, time. Yeah, it's so the bigger issues are not necessarily whether their margins are too high or not. I think it's more about what does it mean to be a citizen? Like, in a sense, we built a political system that citizens through the agency of government legislators and regulators and whatever create the conditions for other people to, uh, you know, or for, for other citizens usually um, to, to, to build businesses. And in some cases, uh, you know, citizens um, through the agency of the government, through the agency of like legislature setting up rules, uh, created a situation where somebody could profit by being the best consumer alternative. And in other cases, Citizens, I would argue, drop the ball by allowing, like in the example of cable television, right? There was an auction for, for cable television bandwidth instead of broadcast television in, I think, 1979. And some people bought it. You could argue they took a risk. Maybe they, they you know, they, they, they earned a chance to something. And over the course of the next 10 years, cable television grew a little bit. They didn't made, a, they made a little bit of money, but it wasn't like, a giant um, profitable investment until the internet hit. And then in the nineties through sort of some quirks of the way that whole thing played out in the 1996 telecommunications act, where there was this huge lobbying by the, those cable television owners, um, they prevented the, 
the internet from being distributed through any other means, basically. And in huge chunks of the country, you have two or even one choice. You can just get Verizon for your internet or just Fios or just uh, Comcast. And it's effectively monopoly. And like when you said something before about how every billionaire took risk to get to be a billionaire, well, some took more risks than others. And I think that there's a lot of people who would say that the cable television billionaires, of which there's at least a few dozen, um, didn't take the kind of risks that the rest of us would consider legitimate, you know, giant risks. It was more like they, quote, paid off the government to ensure that they had a monopoly. Now, I'm oversimplifying it a little bit, but it's an example of how, like, uh, so I think I, I, it allows us to make you know, a conditions where people can have a market and make a lot of money, but it doesn't mean that everybody makes that money fairly. All right. So first I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with the notion that, and I think you might've just gone mute. Oh, no, I hear you again. Um, I'm going to disagree with the notion that there are dozens of cable billionaires. I, I, I think actually, um, if you look at the entire life cycle of cable, uh, which we're near the end of, um, I don't think it was that profitable a venture. Um, it's possible that some people made a lot of money, uh, as shareholders, but they would have had to sell at the right times, uh, because cable, com- the cable infrastructure today is, 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 is largely, it's getting to a point where it's being kind of monopolized, um, because it's expensive to maintain, it's a commodity product and it doesn't really make a lot of sense to, 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 to have that much, like people aren't competing in it. and and so that, that may pretend kind of bad things in the future for um, internet infrastructure, but it's not that profitable business relative to what it costs. And then you, you said something about companies buying off the government. I mean, they paid the government huge sums of money so that they could invest huge sums of money in building out a network. And what they convinced the government was, and I think they're, they're not wrong, um, but maybe they are, maybe the government shouldn't have, um, shouldn't have gotten involved in this. I probably agree. I definitely agree the government should have gotten involved in this, but they're saying, Hey, I'm going to spend X billion dollars running cable, right? Um, to that small town over there and to this place over here and to the other place over there and building out a network. And what you didn't want was like in the early days of the railroads, what happened was there were hundreds of rail, dozens for sure, but I think even hundreds of companies building railroads and it, it, it led to a huge amount of capital destruction because mo- most, uh, and, and, and this is a kind of an interesting feature of capitalism, creative destruction. I, I think it's fascinating. But uh, a lot of people f- felt there was a place to get rich by building railroads. And so they, they invested lots and lots of money and shareholders, et cetera. People d- jumped into these companies to, to lay all this rail. And then what happened is they didn't make the profit that they had anticipated, right? And so they end up losing a ton of money, right? And ultimately, um, ultimately, um, you know, a couple of people started to buy up all these railroads, like the Vanderbilts among them, um, and 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 kind of turned it into a monopoly. And then they were able to raise rates. And so I think monopoly is a terrible thing um, for society, but it was there was a huge amount of devastation that led to the creation of that monopoly. 
there was a lot of capital destruction. A lot of a lot of a lot of dollars were destroyed in the process of making those railroads, which turned out to be a huge public good. And I'll give you another example: is the airlines. By the way, I mean there are people that might have made a lot of money in the airlines, but but the but as a net total across the history of flying, right? The airlines have been a machine for destroying capital. They literally, they, they, they don't make money when you take all of the costs into account. They, they spend lots and lots of millions of dollars, billions of dollars on buying airplanes and staffing airplanes. And they're all, I mean, even without the pandemic, just before the pandemic, airlines were just, just, just starting to become a profitable industry. Wait, like so a that, real profitable industry. Like, I would still disagree with you that all the cable television billionaires, sometimes they didn't really invest much in the infrastructure and they just rode a monopoly to, to huge amounts of profit without improving consumers' lives, without improving the quality of internet and bandwidth. But, but I'll grant you the larger point for sure that like airlines and certain of these other industries, it's, they're not necessarily profitable. There's just such a huge amount of uh, um, traffic, literally, uh, that somebody has to sort of fill that market niche, even if they're only doing it at cost or even sort of over course of time, a lot of them take a loss. Um, but the society as a whole benefits from there having been railroads to get everywhere or airplanes and airports to get everywhere and to move stuff around. Um, I, I think you missed or you, you skipped over a little bit the sort of bigger idea that, that, that there's a perception of fairness about all of us citizens um, towards somebody who's making a huge profit. So like Bezos is a great example actually right now, specifically right now, because the pandemic shut down so many other businesses and left uh, people with much less of an option to get stuff, even groceries delivered to their house, except for Amazon. And it, it sort of disproportionately benefit all the closures and shutdowns disproportionately benefited Amazon. Um, and, you know, in some ways it just was positioned well. Some of those were trends that already existed. Retail was already suffering because people were ordering more and more online. But it obviously like gave it a giant, a giant kick in the ass that, that you know, people almost had to use Amazon a lot more. And I think there's a perception that, even if you totally supported the idea that Bezos and Amazon should be tremendously profitable up until the pandemic, if their profits like doubled, if they suddenly were making an extra $30 billion a year profit because all the other businesses were forcibly shut down, I think there was a perception that that's unfair. Yeah. So I, yeah. So I, I follow Amazon as a hobby, but I don't dig into their financials, so I couldn't tell you if their profits doubled. The bigger problem is is a huge problem in society um, that all these pieces and articles have basic fundamental lack of understanding of the difference between capital and income, for example, um, and that there are all these like I saw this kind of great um, piece on I should find it and post it in the comments, but it was this, this this visualization of Jeff Bezos' wealth at $200 billion. And it talked about how in one day he made, I don't know how many billion dollars. And that all flows from, that's a capital conversation. 
Jeff Bezos didn't earn anything, right? He didn't make no nobody cut him a check. Here's two hundred billion dollars, right? So that wasn't revenue. You're saying it was just the estimate of the cap of his company. Yeah, it wasn't income. Right. Income is when you get paid to do something. And just kind of for, for those that don't know, and this is pretty basic stuff, but maybe some people don't understand it. Maybe it's a lesson that needs to kind of be kind of repeated. But income is when when you do a job, you do something, and you get paid, right? And, and even Amazon has income, right? They sell you a pack. You go online and you buy a blender, right? And it's $25 or whatever it is for the blender. And they're blenders that are $200 these days. And let's you bought a cheap blender, 25 bucks, right? Somebody is selling that. Somebody made that in China. Whatever. We're not going to go through all the supply chain. But um, let's say the blender cost, I don't know, $10 to make in China. And the person in China sold it to the person in America who's selling it through Amazon. You know, Amazon's taking a small cut. The dollars that are left in Amazon's pocket after everybody else got paid, that's profit or closer or income. And if you look at financial statements, the line on the financial statement that is, is associated with profit is, is actually the net income line, which means that after you've taken out all the costs, what is the income? And then that versus capital. Capital is the factory or the company, right? So what did it cost to build the 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 the, the infrastructure that um, that what did it cost to build the infrastructure that you that you use to produce that those dollars of income and ownership of a company is a capital investment you own you effectively own the capital which gives you a right to the income but the income the fact that Amazon stock has basically I think doubled since the pandemic started right is people's belief that Amazon is going to benefit from the pandemic in the long term. It's going to accelerate the trend. Amazon is actually not a profitable company at all. They're, they're very, very, I mean, it's a lot of billions of dollars, right? But the way we measure profitability or the, and the way profitability should be measured is as a kind of a, as a kind of those net margins we talked about before with Walmart and their two cents. I think Amazon, I think net net makes less than the two cents. By the way, and less than what? Less than those two cents. I think Amazon. Uh, I think Amazon's net profit margin is less than two percent. I'm, I'm actually well, pretty that I, I can look at, but it's you, you and I have talked about this a little bit in the context of our book and publishing our book on Amazon, um, which controls about eighty five percent of the distribution of uh, electronic books, and I think I don't, I don't know some significant portion of print books. It's not 85%, but it's pretty high. So we chose to publish through Amazon. You can get our book there. Um, partly because, you know, that's not so much a choice of vote of confidence in the company as more a choice of the marketplace where we can sell it the most. And, uh, you know, in the course of exploring that, we discovered that in certain cases, they were selling things for less than the cost of it in order to sort of bring other benefits to their other parts of their business. So you could argue that's predatory business practices. In certain cases, when any company deliberately undersells, sells for less than the cost of their product, takes a loss just to like undercut other potential competitors, some people consider that unethical. I mean, Amazon's such a huge company with so many different branches that I'm not going to say they, one company, are evil just because they do something 
unethical in one small corner of this giant business. I do know that like Amazon Web Services is highly but profitable um, because they had to build so much computing to do their own processing. They wound up becoming a provider of just servers to the entire software industry. Um, yes. So I know that's pretty profitable. Yes, because they spent a lot of money building the infrastructure, which is why, by the way, they're not a profitable company because they're reinvesting all the dollars that are coming in and they're spending a ton of money on, on, on new equipment, new factories, new, new, new cars. I mean, if you, if you live in America today, one thing that you'll have noticed over the last couple of years, at least in Southern California, is that Amazon, when you get an Amazon package, it used to come from UPS or FedEx. Now it comes in a truck that looks just like the UPS truck or the FedEx truck but it's branded Amazon because Amazon has literally built out a fleet of delivery service and they hire and, the driver and what? drones and drones. Yeah, well, they haven't gotten to drones yet, but drones is the next investment. They're pouring billions of dollars into drones and look, they're doing that so that they can not have to employ so many people so they can reduce the cost of the good to your house. And I mean, back to the same, on the same vein, Without Amazon as a publisher, we would not have had a book published. It just wouldn't have happened. Like well, they created, they, they, they would have happened. happened. We had great ideas, but for all of for all of human history, people had good ideas. They didn't necessarily have the ability to bring them to market. So what happened? You and I got together. We spoke on the phone a few times. We had, oh, this is an idea for a book. Let's 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 make it. What did we do? shot a few things back and forth in Google Documents, which is a free service provided to us by Google, and we uploaded it to the we uploaded it to the internet, right? And somebody buys our book, they click buy the book, which I hope everybody does. Um, they click on that and the order goes to Amazon. Amazon handles the shipping, they handle the order, they print the book, they do everything, right? All we did, and I'm not saying that, I'm not belittling our contribution, I think we're geniuses, right? <laughs> But all we did is we had we had ideas, but we didn't really. What was our risk in all of this? It was relatively small. It's, uh, it's tiny. Whereas twenty years ago, if you wanted to publish a book, right, we had to, we would have had to take a get a manuscript together and go pound the pavement and knock on the doors of book publishers who would have to take agents, a risk. Agents and publishers. Um, well, I think it ties together a little bit. Like the one of the goals of our book is to help educate people about what they're misunderstanding about the words that are sort of commonly used and argued about. And I, I'm wondering out of this, like discussing what Amazon's doing, cable television, internet, like how I know that as a consumer, I'm powerless if I'm not educated about the market. I, I bought a pair of uh, sunglasses. I got them delivered today. I got them on AliExpress and they finally arrived in Israel like a month later. And I took them out of the package right in the, uh, in the, the post office and showed them to the guy. And he was like, that's amazing. And I was like, they were only, you know, $5 on AliExpress. And he was so stunned. He didn't think it was possible to get nice sunglasses for less than, um, you know, whatever it is, 50 or 100 shekels or 400 shekels or whatever it is in Israel. And these were just as nice as those. And it was like, well, on that particular thing, I did some research. I educated myself as a consumer. 
So well, you how- also live in a country with a command and control economy. So the reason why it's three or 400 shekels to buy a pair of nice sunglasses in Israel is because of the role of government in business. It's not the only reason. Yes. And I'm going to take this all the way back kind of to government and consumerism and and citizenship is at the end of the day, market forces are a good thing, right? They, they, they make our world a better place every single day. That's, they are what created all, everything that we're using to have this conversation right now from across the world. Would not have been possible without market forces, without people taking risk and without people investing. And are, are there limits to that? A hundred percent. But it's that and do, do, on occasion, do you need to have a government involved to kind of establish the rules of the road and make sure that they're applied and followed consistently and not abused? One hundred percent. But you, like it, it's, it's, it's a balancing act. Right. And I think that I think that it's it's a balancing act that largely fails in most instances. And so in both directions, I'm not I'm not saying that there's any kind of any kind of perfect model for it. And like when the government gets involved in things, they eliminate competition and competition is what creates the ability to for us to upload a manuscript and publish a book. Because in, well, in the best interest, in the best interest of the publishing companies would be that Amazon never would have been able to do that. Right. And they, they and and the 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 startup costs to do a book publishing were huge. And Amazon said, you know what, I'm gonna flip that model on its head. I'm gonna disrupt that industry. They took huge amounts of risk. I mean, Jeff Bezos deserves to be the richest man in the world. And and quite frankly, I believe that first of all. $200 billion is more money than anybody knows what to do with. And I, I, I went and did a little bit of kind of research on it the other day when I saw that, that scroller showing, Oh, what, what could we do if we just took Jeff Bezos's money? Right. But if the government has this attitude of, we're just going to take your money. If you reach a certain point, right. Then, then you're going to stop the next Amazon from happening. And I think that Amazon has made, everybody's life a little bit better and in some cases a lot better and it just will not happen at some point i i still think even from within the things you've said like when railroad competition got too out of control the government basically had to step in and turn it into a monopoly because it it was actively destructive in a lot of ways um the, the the government I don't think the government turned the rails into monopoly. I, I, I think the the causation went the other way. The government broke up the monopoly, and that that's what happened, right? So there's all this destruction. Uh, I think it was the Vanderbilts, but I could be wrong. Um, stepped in and started buying up railroads, buying up lines of railroads, and then there were there was just a few railroads left, kind of, and it was all everything was kind of all in, in one hands. And so then what happened was right up until the point where there was not enough competition left in the market. Right, prices were going down because when you have competing forces, right, when you have when you have competition, price is going to go down, right, and because the, all the players in the market, and this is a kind of economic theory, is that in the long run, profits are all competed away, right, where the, in the long run, companies are going to make products and sell products at the level where it's almost no profit. I mean, the economic profit, right? I Meaning, actually, at the end of the day, after I bought, bought all the costs that's going to go away. And, and the reason is because when you have competition, right, 
I can do it for a nickel. I can do it for, I can do it for four cents. I can do it for three cents until you find that point where I can't do it for any cheaper than that. It's just not possible. Right. Or you turn or, and, and then we get into marketing, but at the moment I'm just leaving it in the realm of economics. Right. And so when you eliminate that competition, right. And there is no more competition. Now I can charge whatever I want. Right. If there is nobody else selling a railroad, sell, owning railroads, and it's just one person or one company, then they can the, then the prices start to go up. And so what we saw recently uh, when Sprint and T-Mobile wanted to merge, right? The the FCC um, was it FCC or FTC. I don't know. one one is the you know the, they're probably both involved. I don't know which one kind of blocked it. But uh, one is the Federal Communications Commission and one is the Federal Trade Commission. Um, for a long time had determined, it's probably the FTC, um, that the nation needed four wireless carriers to maintain competition for consumers. Right. And so they blocked the sale, the merger, for a very long time. They, they, it was just, they, there was just kind of the conventional wisdom that you need four players in the market to... To to make to keep prices competitive for consumers, and we'll see what happens. Right? Unfortunately, well, unfortunately, it, it, it's hard to unwind some of that stuff right, down right. the road. It's hard to unwind on a number of levels. Like there was another industry where that happened, which was banking, where for a while banks were prevented from merging together, and then there was a decision in America to let some of the big banks merge because they had to compete with big banks like the Central Bank of Japan and Deutsche Bank, which is like the Bank of Germany, and that they, they just couldn't compete with that scale. But what that wound up doing was creating giant risks that um, it wound up going to taxpayers instead of to the bankers or to the, 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 the shareholders of the bank. They wound up sort of socializing the risk which sometimes these mergers create things. So this, this comes back to what, where I was going a little bit with the railroads is to say that citizens, if they're not informed and educated and thoughtful and engaged with the way these dynamics play out, then you wind up having this much smaller subset of groups in these industries who are, so to speak, poised to profit from it, who um, may act in against the public interest. If you don't have active citizens, you wind up with some pretty bad outcomes, I would contend. And I would uh, even contend like people, people have, and this is a bit of that sort of condescending elite thing that goes on. People think that there are experts in charge of things, right? And experts actively encourage other people to think, think that the experts are in charge and, and that they don't have to worry about X, Y, Z, because the experts are in charge of the economy. The experts are in charge of your medicine. The experts are in charge of foreign policy, whatever it is. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to be an educated citizen. And at a certain point, there becomes this kind of anger among citizens when we feel like not only are we not educated about it, but maybe we're not being even told the truth about it. And I think a huge part of the breakdown right now is that there's a perception. I'm not saying it's true or not, but there's a perception that citizens are not being adequately informed or maybe even actively lied to about what's going on with these major public issues. Like, you know, Trump sort of brought that out in both directions, that you had these sort of extreme portrayals 
as if Trump is some sort of fascist who's completely in favor of capitalism. It's manifestly not true if the majority of <laughs> rich people and giant corporations are trying to, to move against him. He's obviously not purely in favor of those capitalists being, you know, becoming predatory, whatever. So it's like, did you, you listen know, to Eric Weinstein's most recent uh, portal episode where he talks about Trump's uh, Trump's uh, cashing in some of his chips on Trump or something like that? And he and he and he 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 points out that that Americans were led to believe like that Donald Trump was both the the worst human being ever, right, and committed these crimes. But then, don't worry, it's not that serious. Like they didn't do anything about it. Right, 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 right. There was sort of a, there's so many contradictions within the narrative, because if Trump is both a fascist and a narcissist and a uh, racist, uh, racist, racist, anti-Semite, or, do, I mean, the uh, you know, and, and they, and they like to brand all of us. I keep saying you know, worst racist ever, like I'd say, or, or worst anti-Semite ever. Like you look at kind of all the things that he does and did, and it's just like, if that was what he is, then he was a miserable failure. And I guess that maybe, you know, everything is painted so that you can kind of call Trump a miserable failure. Right. He wasn't a good enough anti-Semite. Like, I'm not sure what happened. No, I mean, uh, like, I, mean like I, I look at it like Trump's an anti-Semite. I heard this all the time. Trump's an anti-Semite. Well, let's see. His son-in-law is Jewish. His daughter converted to Judaism, right? He did a lot of things to help the state of Israel. How is this man anti-Semite? Right. Right. I mean, he's a racist, but he, he, he spent a lot, he did, he did criminal justice reform, right? Right. And he did it because of issues of race, meaning because he recognized that, that the criminal justice system was, was racially broken. And did he completely fix it? No. Right. But like, clearly not the actions of a racist. Well, I, you know, I think you and I tend towards the older definitions of racism that, oh, yeah. you know, more like George Wallace or something, who's like, I'm a racist and I want schools to stay segregated and I want Alabama to stay, whatever George Wallace stood for. In I showed you that, that there's that YouTube video that went around of the uh, woke, woke and racist agreeing on everything. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, woke bothers me because sometimes they wind up supporting and saying exactly the same thing as racists say. Um, but but I'm willing to accept that there's subtler levels of racism that still need to be addressed. I just wouldn't put it this way. Like with Marxism, I think some of the diagnosis can be accurate, but the prescription is uh, destructive. Yeah. Um, so people should be good citizens, should educate themselves. Should read the, I'm putting into the comments feed the woke, the woke racist video that we just kind of briefly discussed, except the Periscope. If you're watching on Periscope, they don't allow me to post links. But um, Facebook and YouTube got it. Um, yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I don't think that any any one... I don't think any one person or party has all the answers and all, or all the solutions. And I think that there's, there are some elements of truth in many different philosophies and, 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 and things. And, and as, as it, I agree a hundred percent with your notion that um, civic engagement and people, people should be more educated about these things. 
Um, the challenge is that it's exhausting. Uh, there's just so much. That's true. And I mean, some of the most informed people that I know are actually the most misinformed people that I know. And there's all kinds of issues with media and kind of narratives that are going on in all directions. And it's, 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 it's really hard. And one of the things that I think has come up in the last couple of years, actually, is the, the kind of the tossing aside of experts. Like you talked about how don't worry about it, the experts have it. That, that kind of went out the window in 2016, both, both Trump, the election of Trump and, and Brexit. It was a, a kind of an astounding rejection of that expertism uh, yeah. philosophy. It was like, maybe experts don't know. And this is part of why we're struggling so hard, I think, with the pandemic also. Um, because there has been a large-scale discrediting of experts everywhere from both sides, and and it's it's I mean it, it is I mean it's good and it's bad. I mean there are all kinds of problems with experts, and I think that uh, I know that you've recently been reading uh, 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 Nicholas Taleb, um, the based yeah. on a private conversation. He goes on a whole rampage in 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 the book The Black Swan about about kind of the fraud of experts. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was where I first encountered like a real cogent argument against the notion of experts. Uh, and I, I don't personally trust experts, um, not as experts. I, I, I try to always take the evidence presented to me, weigh it, do a little bit of my own research to see if all the evidence is being presented to me and make kind of come to kind of conclusions based on kind of mental models that I've built over many, many years. And on occasion, those those shift dramatically. Um, it's hard. It's not easy to do. And then on top of that, that just that's hours and hours and hours to just kind of keep up with what's going on and be informed about current events, history, the value of citizenship, all the things that we just discussed today in the course of the last hour or so. And then right. we haven't actually. I mean, you can call this civic engagement because we are discussing civic topics and trying to. Uh, broaden our own minds and potentially have some people listen to what we're saying and get some good ideas themselves. But we haven't actually done any civic duties. We didn't go out and fix a road or or sit in a, on a committee or any of that stuff, right? I, I mean, I'm trying to go around kill kill Corona with my you are kill, okay. And, and then I guess it depends on how you define civic engagement, right? I, I killing Corona with no, lightsaber. Is, that's a good point. So so I mean, part of the, the idea of like civic engagement, like e- even if we said that voting is the sort of pinnacle of civic engagement, which I'm not sure I agree with, but even if it was, it's frustrating for Americans, I think for almost all Americans, that they don't have other choices than the two. And, and there's sort of structural reasons why they really only have two choices or sometimes even one choice about who to vote for in most elections because of gerrymandering, because of uh, matching funding and, and uh, thresholds and all sorts of stuff. It makes it really difficult. Israel's kind of a counterpoint that we have a multi-party system and uh, they, they've raised and lowered the threshold a couple of times. But there's a whole joke going on right now because uh, the opposition to Netanyahu just and even part of his own party split off. I think it's like several new parties just formed. So there's a joke that all the new parties are going to get just enough votes to stay below the threshold. And Likud is going to get all 120 seats in the next Knesset because everybody falls below the threshold. So, like, I mean, any system you build could backfire at a certain scale. Um, But, uh, you know, 
the, the point is more about the self-correctingness of the system. I think America's strength has always been that it has mechanisms to checks and balances that even if they don't work in the moment, they'll work eventually. Um, if there are engaged citizens um, trying to figure out what goes on and advocating to, to change the things. I mean, there's been huge successes for citizen advocacy. I think most recently of like psychic uh, legalizing or decriminalizing psychedelic medicine and healing in all sorts of uh, states and municipalities and the veterans administration of like treating uh, soldiers with PTSD wound up being almost like the cutting edge of this because they had so many soldiers with non, you know, PTSD that wasn't being treated well or wasn't successful at treatment. And they finally started experimenting with psychedelics and, and had it be successful. So it's kind of bottom up citizen engagement is actually making meaningful change. It can happen. Yeah. Um, I think that mostly it can happen and should happen uh, starting at the very local level. Um, and that's where, if you want to be civically engaged, that's where you can have impact. Like you're not going to go out and really have a large impact on presidential politics or national federal politics for most people. Uh, but, um, you may have impact on your local city environment and cities are, you know, are kind of test grounds for, um, for kind of that for bigger stages and see what happens, see what works. And I, I mean, it's kind of sad and unfortunate to me that some of the, the that at least one of the political parties um, doesn't model, doesn't take successful stuff as kind of the, the lack of metrics of success. Kind of, it's just like I have an idea, so I'm just going to keep going for it, uh, and I have the power, so I'm just going to keep maintaining it. I mean, um, Los Angeles is a completely failed city, um, and it is uh, it is a it is its mayor is, is waiting to move on to his next assignment. Um, I, he recently encountered a lot of blowback from BLM. So maybe he won't, he, maybe he will be ended, but the mayor before him, you know, kind of has moved you up in the Democratic party. And uh, you would <laughs> failed in the sense of there being a, a colony of 40,000 homeless in the city center or like, what's your, uh, yeah, uh, for uh, I mean, um, just, I mean, there are just so many, but yeah, before, I think that's just a basic, very, very basic failure with, if you have a colony of 40,000 homeless people in your city, like, I, I don't think there's a metric in which you can say you succeeded unless your metric for success was to create homeless people. Oh God. Which yeah. I, I, uh, okay. I don't think, I don't think was the case, but um, I mean, it's just, you know, I, I don't really see any success having come out of that city uh, for a long time, um, businesses flee, uh, residents are fleeing, rents are staggeringly unaffordable. Um, I mean, I, crime is going up. I, it, you name it. I mean, pick 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 a vector on which you want to analyze metrics for success, and it has not. Well, I, I will say, and this is just like you said, there's too much information for everyone to process. Successes, especially government successes, tend to be invisible. We tend to not notice them. We take them for granted. The fact that we were able to drive from one end of the street to the other was a success of the government at maintaining a road, uh, even if we don't think of it that way. Um, you know, the fact that, that uh, you know, the police stopped most crimes or the overall, you know, thing meant that a, a large chunk of the city had very little crime. Um, 
doesn't feel like a success when there's a real breakdown in another part of the city. Um, you know, the, the, the failures are, are disproportionately noticeable. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm not saying it's a failure, but I suspect in a giant bureaucracy the size of the city of Los Angeles, there still are some successes happening even right now. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the traffic lights work more or less on. I mean, I'm, I, obviously, it's an overly dour view. Um, and there's, there's always going to be some little amounts of success here and there. And yes, failure is going to be more visible, but, um, you know, that's, you know, you got to pick metrics and and kind of push forward and and kind of measure on them and see, and see if you've had real success and overall. And I think that if you, you know, hold the, the citizens of LA and just ask them a basic question, do you think the city is moving in the right direction or the wrong direction, or has it gotten better or worse in the last five years? I think the answer is it, it has gotten worse. Um, yeah, I, um, across I, most, I mean, I don't, and I, 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 mean, I can look, I'm sure there's opinion polling on this stuff. Um, I, I was trying to pull away from the sort of polarizing narrative that sees all government is evil or all uh, of the Democrats are evil or all of because I, I see all government as ultimately, I don't know, evil might be the wrong word, too strong a word, but um, there's a lot of, and this, this leads me all the way back to the tax question, right? I'd be happy to pay as much taxes as I do, or even potentially more if I got a really well working system in return for it. But when I look at the amount of money that's thrown down the drain by the government on stupid, um, it makes me angry and it makes me say, Hey, I don't want to, I don't want to give any of my dollars to this. So let me find the party that's going to take less of my dollars because this one and that one aren't doing anything to, to kind of, deserve those dollars because the government takes them by right or not actually by right. Right is actually the wrong word. The government takes it at gunpoint under threat of violence is how the government takes taxes. In a sense. Yeah. My, my standard is a tiny bit different. I almost don't mind if a government spends money badly, as long as they take responsibility for that and, and, and course correct. If they'll say, Oh, look, this program didn't work. We tried. We wanted to generate a certain outcome. We, 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 we wanted to encourage or incentivize or build something and it failed. And we are sorry. Like, I would rather that I would rather money be badly spent, but then admit that the experiment failed and try something else than the current sort of always self-justifying sort of politic way of saying everything um which you know trump was a genius in the sense of saying things that politicians usually don't say but that was not one of his strengths was saying gee i really screwed that up Um, that's not one of his strengths i would have loved to see that i'd love to see that from just about any politician i don't think i've seen it much that would be a, a breath of fresh air, although it would probably be terribly unsuccessful. Um, so I think we're coming up on an hour and a half, which is a little longer than we typically shoot for. Um, you want to have any final thoughts on this to kind of bring this discussion to a close? God, I wish everybody listening would, you know, like to be a citizen is, I mean, obviously you have to pick your battles, but, um, you know, anything you do engage with, try to be an educated citizen about. I mean, even buying stuff from Amazon. And I'm not saying I 
I have tried at certain points to find out what's happening in the full supply chain. You know, Amazon does mistreat some of its factory workers and work them 24 hours and clock their bathroom breaks and, you know, things that make most of us feel uncomfortable. Do they do that as an entire company? Are they addressing that? Maybe they're making some of those improvements. Are some of the products that you're buying on Amazon or on at Walmart shelves or whatever, are they made by sweatshop labor in China? Probably some of it, it's really hard to avoid it because the, the supply chains are opaque. And I remember Walmart at one point about 10 years ago was considered the world's best corporate citizen because they were just trying to make a full vetting of their entire supply chain. And it was generating social change in China in like backwoods China factories suddenly had to comply with like worker worker standards and, and workers comp policies and all sorts of things because Walmart was such a big customer that it, it, it generated change. And I don't think Walmart was even doing it for PR value. It sort of emerged. People heard about it later, but you know, be a citizen in whatever way, whatever thing you're engaged with, see if you can find out more about it. I definitely, I definitely agree with, with that. Um, and then, um, I mean, back to kind of to bring it all full circle. We, we are here, uh, to talk about these issues as people who, as you can tell, disagree a lot. I mean, the last hour and a half, I'm, I'm not sure how much, I mean, we might've agreed on a lot of like individual points, but on a whole, there's definitely a lot of, there's a huge gap between what I believe and what Matthew believes and how, if you put any of these issues on a ballot, how we would vote. And um, yet, you know, we're friends. We, we get along quite well. Uh, we enjoy robust discussion and debate and bringing up ideas and topics that we don't, you know, that, that maybe the other side hadn't heard of. And we listen to each other's opinions and think it through. And uh, I suggest that as you go about your daily on, be better internet citizens. And the way to be a good internet citizen, which is the only way to really, I think, fix the rest of the world, is to engage, engage, but engage uh, politely and with reason, ask clarifying questions, and, um, you know, discuss your points and debate. Please don't, you don't have to agree on everything, but, but you know, focus on toning down the rhetoric and the hatred and make less assumptions about what the other person means when they say something. <clears throat> and if you need help with that, buy our book. I do not think that word means what you think it means. I don't know which way the camera goes. It's kind of backwards, kind of flipped reverse, weird. So here, I see. and you, yeah. you can get it on Amazon. Um, highly recommended. And uh, thank you for watching. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Enough with 2020. We're going to we're going to put 2020 in hindsight. <laughs> yes.